You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. Today on the podcast, we're going to return to a fairly familiar topic to most listeners of the show, which is North Korea. Uh, However, unlike most episodes we've done on North Korea recently, we unfortunately won't be talking about ballistic missiles or nuclear weapons, uh, but we will be talking about the ways in which North Korea enables its persistent pursuit of these technologies. Uh, today is April 13th, and actually earlier today, uh, the U.S. Office of the Department of um, Director of National Intelligence released its worldwide threat assessment in which uh, the intel community, as it has observed in recent years, observed that despite the current level of pressure on North Korea, Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, and his regime are, quote, uh, probably do not view the current level of pressure as enough to require a fundamental change in approach. Uh, So the international community, especially in 2016 and 2017, um, came around as North Korea was testing all kinds of new ballistic missiles and and nuclear weapons to put in place a much more wide-ranging sanctions uh, regime on the country, um, backed by multiple resolutions at the United Nations Security Council. This became a contentious issue, uh, for instance, during the bout of diplomacy that took place in 2018 and 2019 when the North Koreans sought sanctions relief. Um, But as we've learned since then, the North Koreans have grown quite adept at evading sanctions and uh, continuing their um, pursuit of illicit um, ballistic missile activity and um, pursuit of nuclear weapons more generally. So to talk through some of these issues today, I'm actually I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased to have with me um, Lucas Quo, who is a um, a senior analyst at C4ADS, where he works in the counterproliferation cell, specializing in North Korean illicit shipping and procurement networks. Lucas, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And alongside Lucas, uh, I'm also delighted to be joined by Joe Byrne, a research analyst at the Royal United Services Institute in London. Joe, thank you for joining me as well. Thanks for having me. So uh, Lucas and and Joe are two among a group of authors who recently worked on a joint C4ADS uh, RUSI report called Black Gold, Exposing North Korea's Oil Procurement Networks. Uh, And this report um, continues uh, and builds on a lot of great work that C4ADS and RUSI have done in this area, looking at North Korea's um, illicit um, maritime smuggling activities and networks across the uh, Indo-Pacific region. So today we'll talk through some of those issues. But, uh, you know, I've said a fair bit. So, um, Lucas, let's start with you. Uh, before we sort of jump into this, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how North Korea uh, generally relies on the outside world for its energy needs? Uh, how do North Korean energy imports intersect uh, additionally with its WMD and missile programs? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So just like, uh, you know, any other modern state, uh, North Korea depends on oil to power its economy uh, and, of course, its military. So from heating lamps to farm tractors to, uh, you know, the transporter, erector, launcher vehicles that carry North Korea's ICBMs, uh, you need oil for all of that. Uh, but the problem that has plagued North Korea for decades is that it is uh, it's completely dependent on foreign imports of oil uh, for two main reasons. So first is that North Korea doesn't have any proven oil reserves, uh, which means it can't extract on its own the crude oil that is refined into the variety of useful petroleum products like diesel and gasoline. Um, and much of that crude oil actually reportedly comes from China through a pipeline um, at the China-North Korea border. 
the second reason is because North Korea has a very limited oil refining capacity. So uh, I believe most recent reports uh, on the subject uh, suggest that there is just one active refinery at the moment that is uh, responsible for most of the domestic production of uh, refined petroleum products. So ultimately, this is a major geostrategic vulnerability for North Korea, and it's one that the international community has exploited as a way to uh, increase or decrease pressure on uh, North Korea over its WMD and missile programs. So the UN Security Council uh, likely targeted this vulnerability when it passed uh, two resolutions in 2017 that placed uh, annual caps on North Korea's imports of crude and refined uh, petroleum products uh, after uh, its nuclear and ballistic missile tests that year. Um, but as we've seen from you know reporting and an analysis from the UN, uh, from other member states, as well as other research groups, uh, North Korea has uh, easily breached those caps every year since the imposition of the oil sanctions. And that is due um, likely in no small part uh, to the highly capable foreign smuggling networks that help procure and deliver oil uh, on its behalf. So, um, Joe, tell us a little bit about these uh, networks. We'll dig in a little bit to the specifics that you uh, unveil in your recent report. But generally speaking, uh, how has North Korea adapted its fuel procurement strategy since the implementation uh, of the last round of uh, Security Council resolutions in uh, 2017? Yeah, sure. So as Lucas said, in, in late 2017, December 2017, uh, the UN imposed a 500,000 barrel uh, cap on the amount of oil that was um, supposed to be imported into North Korea. All these, um, all the deliveries are meant to be, uh, uh, they were meant to notify the UN Security Council. Um, and Russia and China, where the pipelines going to North Korea, um, have to uh, report on how much oil uh, they are um, pumping in each year. Um, but at the end of 2017, uh, we saw a, a drastic change in the way that North Korea was procuring its oil. Um, so normally you would have vessels sailing into ports from North Korea, uh, from China, places. Um, but then we saw a change in terms of the vessel's activity. They were um, changing up their modus operandi and, and uh, traveling into international waters and doing STS transfers um, from foreign flag tankers. Um, this then changed again uh, as the as the sanctions um, uh, went on, and um, these foreign flag tankers became more and more important into the oil procurement strategy of, of North Korea. Um, we saw at the start of 2019 um, foreign flag tankers directly delivering to North Korea, and these tankers are, are really important for the oil procurement strategy because uh, they seem to be larger than North Korean tankers um, by over double. Um, and uh, so they could carry more oil, there was less contact with the licit market, and it was more efficient. And that is just one of the reasons how they can, uh, how they can seemingly break the oil cap um, many times over. Um, and uh, it's, it's become the center of their oil procurement strategy. Uh, the latest UN panel report showed that even more vessels, uh, even more foreign flag tankers have now started delivering uh, to North Korea. So it shows that this, this strategy is working for them and um, they're continuing to to adapt it and, and in, increase the, the volume of vessels that are, are delivering to North Korea now. 
Right, right. So uh, coming around to now your uh, recent report, so you specifically uh, in your report dig into um, North Korea's liaising with uh, organized criminal networks uh, around around Asia, uh, additionally, um, in addition to multinational fuel companies. And uh, you talk about sort of nodes in this illicit procurement network uh, based uh, in Taiwan, which I found to be quite interesting, China, uh, and also Singapore. Uh, Southeast Asia, of course, has been um, a, a somewhat understudied locus of North Korean activity, but in recent years has gained more prominence, particularly since uh, the assassination of Kim Jong-nam uh, in Kuala Lumpur International Airport in 2017, I think, drew more attention to uh, North Korean activities in that part of the world. But tell us a little bit about um, these um, specific networks, uh, sort of, you know, give us the executive summary of, uh, of, of, of what you um, outline in your uh, recent report regarding these uh, networks. Uh, Lucas, do you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I believe one of the most interesting findings uh, from our report is, uh, you know, that the evidence that we've uncovered suggests that transnational uh, organized crime uh, provide North Korea with the uh, capacity and capability to smuggle fuel at scale. And so what we mean by this is, uh, is that, you know, North Korea has actually tapped into this regional black market for fuel, uh, one that has existed long before the North Korean sanctions regime came into place. Um, and so for decades, you know, because of uh, different pricing regimes across Northeast Asia, uh, you know, China, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, these countries all have uh, different pricing regimes for oil, for fuel. Um, you know, that are designed to uh, protect uh, domestic industries or support, uh, you know, other uh, sectors such as fishing. Um, and so what this has uh, resulted in is actually the creation of uh, arbitrage opportunities uh, throughout the region. Um, and smuggling networks, um, you know, have taken advantage of those arbitrage opportunities and have developed this, these logistical know-how the, the, and the and the, uh, the the networks and the contacts and tradecraft in order to move fuel, uh, at, at, you know, from uh, you know across the region, um, and to sell it at extra, uh, ex extravagant profits. So um, uh, you know, this regional black market for fuel uh, has also cultivated this community of sophisticated smugglers that North Korea has likely engaged. Uh, in order to uh, procure fuel for its own needs. And so, um, you know, it, what are the, I think one of the biggest uh, misconceptions of, or perhaps the, excuse me, perhaps one of the, uh, um, you know, one of the ways, one of the main things that we uh, have to move away from is that uh, North Korea's uh, sanctions evasion networks operate in a vacuum. And uh, what we discovered from uh, our investigations and our research is that this certainly is not the case. Um, and North Korea, in, in the, at least within the oil smuggling perspective, is likely just one customer in this uh, black market. Mm -hmm. So let's dig in now on um, Taiwan a little bit. So in your report, you describe Taiwan as a key locus. Uh, tell us a little bit about why um, North Korean smugglers are drawn to Taiwan in particular. I mean, obviously, there's there's the island sort of convenient geo, um, you know, strategic uh, location along significant uh, sea lines of communication in the Indo-Pacific. But what else draws North Koreans to Taiwan? Yeah, so I, I mean, uh, in, in our reports, uh, we actually brought out a number of case studies 
uh, of North Korean oil smuggling networks that uh, linked back to Taiwan. Uh, you know, some of the very first uh, cases of uh, North Korean fuel smuggling networks uh, discovered uh, after the imposition of oil sanctions involved, uh, you know, Taiwanese nationals or uh, that uh, owned and managed vessels that were smuggling fuel that were loaded in um, from Taiwanese ports and brought it out into international seas uh, for sh- transfer to North Korean vessels. Yeah, so as Luke, as Lucas is saying, um, Taiwan has been uh, yeah the main the main um, the main procurement node for lots of North Korea's illicit uh, oil procurement uh, over the, in the past. Um, at the, at the end of 2017, when lots of foreign flag tankers were starting to do SCS transfers with North Korean vessels in the East China Sea in international waters, lots of the companies were um, registered and based in in Taiwan. Now, this could be because of uh, Taiwan's core um, central uh, place in regional oil um, trading. Um, it also, as Lucas said before, um, has subsidized fuel. So um, it leads into that um, that environment where uh, lots of fuel smugglers that have been uh, entrenched in the area for years and years and years operate. And North Korea is just one customer um, from these uh, large fuel smuggling networks um, that have um, that they that they've tapped into that that network of of oil smuggling. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also be the fact that uh, Taiwan is is not um, a UN member state, um, and also that uh, these organised crime groups are, are very very well um, very well uh, so very sophisticated, and they're they're very entrenched in in. Um, uh, in the in the oil smuggling of, of the region, right, right. So let's uh, you know talk a little bit about the research methods that you use because I think you know one of the most uh, Im- impressive things about this kind of work mm. is the fact that it's all you know neither of you have clearances. You're working entirely in the open source, uh, tracking these illicit shipping networks uh, and uh, this proliferation finance activity. Tell our listeners who might be less versed with this genre of open source research how exactly um, both of your teams at C4ADS and RUSI uh, go about this work. Uh, you know, what are some of the techniques and tools that you use, uh, and, and what really is the level of confidence that you ultimately have uh, in your findings based on the fact that you're working primarily with open sources? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's it's really from my point of view. Um, I can't speak for for Lucas and, and C4DS, but it's really a layering game. So we have uh, we try and get access to lots of different uh, openly available sources. So that can be AIS data for tracking ships, uh, satellite imagery for uh, actually seeing the vessels in real life, knowing what the vessels look like. Uh, we can access shipping records. Um, and then you have the more traditional open source information, so news sources and academic articles. And it's all about building a picture with with what you have. And actually, the open source information that is available to you now is becoming more and more, it's becoming richer and more freely available and becoming uh, more uh, more affordable. So in, in, in our experience, it's all about layering what you can get get your hands on so you have uh, your AIS data with your uh, satellite imagery to prove the vessel is the, the vessel you're talking about and then you have corporate records to, to see who's owned it who's operated it uh, historically and then we go, we go from there right uh, Lucas did you want to add anything on that 
No, I think uh, Joe described the process uh, very eloquently. Um, it is indeed a layering game. We want to pull together as many sources as possible that is publicly available, which there are many. Um, and I guess the fundamental concept uh, when we're investigating these networks, uh, these maritime networks, is that you know these ships that we're seeing all the time, uh, their images plastered all over the uh, you know media reports and, and things like that. They they are ultimately assets that are used by individuals and entities to conduct the illicit activity. So uh, a lot of the geospatial uh, data and analytical techniques that we use to track these ship-to-ship uh, -ship transfers or direct deliveries of fuel to North Korea, this is just building up the evidence for us to uh, identify who, uh, which networks are responsible for smuggling fuel to uh, North Korea. And so once we're able, the most important thing is being able to take the investigation from sea uh, back onto land uh, where we have uh, access to a wide variety of uh, sources such as uh, corporate registry records, judicial records, uh, customs data, all of this, which uh, were actually used uh, in our report in order to create this uh, comprehensive picture of the network, right? So not only is it, okay, this individual or company is uh, the owner or manager of the ship, but what other characteristics of this network is, um, makes it, uh, determines its its uh, its role or influence within North Korea's oil supply chain. So, for um, you know, for some of these networks that we profiled in the report, we started seeing these uh, you know individuals pop up in multiple court records, uh, indicating that they had a previous record of smuggling in of uh, in, of, of other products. And so, this tells us that you know they have a sort of they have a history of engaging in smoking behavior. Uh, they may have developed methods in order to acquire access or um, uh, you know, access to, uh, you know, a, to, to waters or certain officials that may look the other way while they carry out these activities. And so therefore the importance of these networks changes uh, significantly once we have that context. So uh, just to bring it back, uh, you know, as Joe mentioned, it is indeed layering all these various uh, data sources in order to paint that uh, get a comprehensive picture of what this network is doing. Mm -hmm. So as we as we close out the discussion today, let's turn a little bit to uh, the prescriptive side here. So, you know, leaving aside the question of whether or not sanctions will change Kim Jong-un's decision-making about the value of his nuclear weapons, um, insofar as the enforcement of sanctions is concerned and sort of choking off North Korea's ability to continue procuring uh, fuel, um, in particular illicitly, Based on your research findings, what would you say needs to be done uh, and, and by who here? I mean, you know, we have a number of stakeholders and states. We have Taiwan, non-UN member state. We have uh, obviously the United States, uh, regional states, China, uh, with, a, um, with a complicated now geopolitical relationship with the United States and uh, a much closer relationship with North Korea than it had back in 2016, 2017, when these um, unscurs were originally agreed. So if you had to sort of leave our listeners with a few prescriptive ideas, uh, what would they be? Joe, let's start with you on this one. Yeah, sure. So um, as we showed in our report, um, one way that states can, can really um, look to do, do more on these networks is, is look at the, the links between transnational organized crime. And this is probably a place where member states are already doing a lot of work uh, countering fuel smuggling going in or out of their countries. Um, but it's threading that connection between the organized crime groups who may be facilitating this illicit activity and North Korea may be a customer of these um, these organizations uh, or these networks um, where member states or uh, where 
countries can really uh, target efforts to to disrupt this activity. Uh, Lucas, anything to add to that? Yeah, uh, just to emphasize uh, Joe's point here, uh, connecting uh, you know transnational organized criminal activities to North Korean uh, sanctions evasion is actually a very important distinction to make, right? Uh, so there are policy implications for this, uh, as well as uh, you know uh, it opens up different courses of action on the enforcement side. So um, you know on on policy, there are a whole suite of regulatory measures uh, that can be taken uh, to sort of approach the um, to, to disrupt these smuggling networks that are providing fuel to North Korea. Um, as we've seen, as we've demonstrated in the report from our investigations, uh, these North Korea-linked uh, fuel smuggling networks have uh, connections to uh, smuggling activities involving, you know, uh, you know cigarettes and, and other commodities uh, that may be of interest from a different agency's perspective. And so by activating those, uh, by, by breaking down this uh, this conception of treating all North Korean smuggling networks as part of the sanctions evasion issue, we should be, uh, you know, we are able to activate other uh, agencies' capabilities and, uh, and, and investigative uh, powers and um, policy options uh, in order to um, counter these networks. So just to provide an example, China actually has, uh, you know, announced several initiatives uh, within the last year to um, to uh, dis- to break up a lot of these uh, maritime smuggling networks uh, within its own waters. So there are a lot of vessels in uh, in China that are smuggling oil and uh, other commodities. And the Chinese officials, you know, from the Coast Guard and customs uh, bureaus, they are cracking down on these networks, and they made a big show out of it. Um, and, you know, part of the reason is because uh, intrinsically these networks are not good uh, for uh, China's economy and, and society. There's There may be involvement of corrupt officials, uh, damage to the local economy. And so we, we can kind of change the incentive structure for some of these member states to act on these networks, uh, you know, talk on a different wavelength, but ultimately arrive at the same objective, which is to uh, take these networks out of out of the out of the game, then uh, we might be able to make some progress. So instead of framing these oil smuggling networks as part of a North Korea sanctions evasion problem, uh, by turning it on its head and saying this is a transnational organized crime problem, look, it has effects on your own domestic economy and, and society and, uh, you know, in uh, society, then uh, perhaps we might be able to achieve a different, uh, fresh approaches to uh, this common problem. Yeah, that's a that's a very that's a very interesting point. I mean, you know, ultimately this is this long running now cat and mouse game, and you know, I mean, we've had success with this. Uh, well, in a, in a different sense in the past, right? We can look at the proliferation security initiative and sort of the crackdown on North Korean um, missile smuggling, uh, particularly in the early to mid two thousands under the Bush administration, and that largely succeeded. Obviously, the challenges today are quite different. But I think um, you're right that, you know, conceiving of this in in this new way might be useful. Uh, You know, and in the meantime, you know, North Korea has other tricks up its sleeve to continue financing its activities, uh, you know, things like cryptocurrency and uh, and um, um, cybercrime more generally. But but fuel is ultimately fuel. Uh, You know, they will need to continue um, importing um, these raw materials uh, for the critical inputs for their uh, WMD programs at the end of the day. So. 
uh, you know, I think I think this work um, that you both are uh, involved in uh, continues to be very important. But, um, uh, gentlemen, we're unfortunately out of time, but I wanted to thank you both for taking the time to come on the show and talk through your recent research here. So, uh, Lucas, uh, Joe, thanks a lot for uh, joining me on the show today. Thanks very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks very much. All right. My pleasure. I hope to have you on soon. Thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. For listeners, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. It really helps get the word out about the show and really helps us acquire new listeners as well. Uh, you can leave us a review on uh, any, any podcast portal where you uh, get your episodes. Uh, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.